Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Spotify, all those places. And then you can also check out my blog. I started that almost three years ago. I haven't been writing in it recently, but I come up uh, really up to the Austin oral argument in March of 2021. And you can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is December 17th, twenty. 21. And no sooner had I pressed publish on my last episode than a couple of things happened that I want to talk a little bit about. We did get from the NCAA Board of Governors the approval of the new constitution. There were a few changes made to that. I think I'm going to talk about that in the next episode and then also finally get to these surveys that were done. There was one done before the initial draft was was presented and then there was another one done after that virtual convention in response to the first draft and some interesting stuff there that really puts this whole exercise into perspective, I think, and really exposes this as nothing more than a power grab by the power five with little interest or little support <laughs> outside of that. And the response rates to both of these surveys were abysmal, just abysmal, shocking, really. And that has gotten no attention as well. But the other thing that happened, you know, I mentioned in my last episode when I was talking about this Auburn case that it came out last Friday, December 10th, and I just mentioned in passing that the appeal in this Gatto case was in the U.S. Supreme Court and that the case last Friday, December 10th, had been sent to conferencing where the justices decide whether or not they're going to take the case. And Gatto was one of these criminal cases that was in the second fact pattern. It didn't really relate to the fact pattern that Auburn was in or that Chuck Person got caught up in, where, where enrolled students were being steered to financial advisors or athlete agents. The second fact scenario involved paying recruits to attend a particular school, and that involved the shoe companies, and this was an Adidas case. Could have been Nike, Under Armour, or any other big market participant in the shoe and apparel market, but this was Adidas, and these were all Adidas schools. And I talked about that in the NC State case, because the NC State case ran through the, the Gatto case, or NC State's involvement in the scandal came through the the Gatto case, because Gatto was involved in that. And the shoe companies were basically providing the seed money, and then through intermediaries were getting it to you know a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. <laughs> and ultimately, and, and allegedly, the money was supposed to wind up in the hands of a prize recruit or that recruit's family. And I talked in detail about those fact scenarios in my episodes on the NC State case, and those were episodes 53 to 63. But the defendants were convicted. Gatto was an Adidas employee, and he was really closest to mainstream shoe and apparel company involvement as the prosecutors chose to go. And he was a full-time employee at Adidas and the shady TJ Gasnola guy, the operative at the grassroots level who was trying to acquire talent to bring him to Adidas-sponsored grassroots basketball teams. He asked for the money from Gatto and Gatto supplied it. And then allegedly it made its way into the hands of this prize recruit that went to NC State, to Dennis Smith Jr., who's now playing in the NBA. Gatto was convicted, but he then appealed the case, and his appeal really 
boiled down to a couple things. One, he was saying that NCAA rules cannot be given the status of federal criminal law and that a violation of NCAA rules in and of itself doesn't constitute a crime. And in a related way, he said that the alleged victims here, who were the universities, and remember, Judge Kaplan, Lewis Kaplan, presided over that case in the Southern District of New York. And among all of the district court judges who handled these cases, Kaplan was kind of the hard ass. And uh, he gets a lot of criticism, particularly from uh, criminal defense lawyers, for his tactics and his rulings. But he is not shy to be very forthright in the opinions that he writes. And he wrote uh, an opinion that I talked about at length, explaining why the universities were victims. And he used the victim university theory. That's capital V, capital U. And the notion here was that these assistant coaches, employees of the university, and these shoe company people who have these massive contracts with the very universities that are supposedly the victims, that they were victimized because they gave scholarships to an athlete who was actually ineligible under NCAA rules, and that because of having an ineligible player, unbeknownst to the university, supposedly, that the university was exposed to the unnecessary risk of potential NCAA violations. And one of the things that, from an evidentiary standpoint, that they relied pretty heavily on were these certifications that the athletes and their parents sign that say that they haven't violated any NCAA rules. And that's sort of an insurance policy that the universities have in case something just like this comes up and a kid's implicated in money that moves supposedly for his benefit and to influence a decision to, to attend a school. So they signed these certifications and that was really the linchpin of the government's case. And you, you have to have a victim, right? And there has to be some harm to the victim. Actually, under the wire fraud statutes, you don't even have to prove that up. I mean, it's a very broad statute and it's, it's abused. And, and that was one of the issues in this appeal that the uh, the use of the wire fraud statutes here simply didn't fit because it requires that the victim be deprived of some property or some property interest. And these Mickey Mouse things, the scholarship, the possibility that they might be hauled in by the NCAA, and then this false certification that the victim universities supposedly relied on were sufficient potential harm to the victim that they could support federal criminal charges. So that was the basis of the appeal. And the case went to the Second Circuit. So these cases were tried in the Southern District of New York. New York is in the Second Circuit of federal circuits across the country. And the Second Circuit issued an opinion. And then in that opinion, there was a, a split decision. And I'm going to talk about the dissenting judge's opinion here because this is really a, the requiem to these basketball cases and the absurdity of these prosecutions and the absurdity of the business model and the amateurism-based business model. But uh, it was a two-to-one decision. The Second Circuit upheld the convictions in the district court. And then the, the defendants, Gatto, he appealed to the United States Supreme Court. That case was fully briefed. And then last Friday on December 10th, the case was referred to the justices for what's called conferencing. And once all the briefing is done, these cases and all these appeals are discretionary. So the Supreme Court you know, has to decide whether to take the case. And so we're at that phase. The same was true in Austin. The threshold question is whether the court should take the case. And if the court takes the case, then the parties do a whole new round of briefing and argument on why they should win. 
So we're at the question of whether the court should take the case, and four justices have to say yes to agree to hear a case. And apparently that didn't happen because yesterday the U.S. Supreme Court denied the petition by Gatto. So that ends this case. It is over and done. And I don't think there are any other appeals looming out there. So this is really the last word in a really sad chapter for American law enforcement at the federal level, the, the FBI investigation, the tactics that it used, the inducement, I think the enticement that occurred here that wasn't really raised as a legal issue. But uh, a lot of these transactions, as I mentioned in the last episode, I don't believe would have occurred but for the zealousness of the FBI and its sting operation and the pressure it applied to cooperating witnesses so that they could get favorable treatment for criminal charges that they were facing. This is just a, an absurd fact pattern when you look at it from the resource allocation standpoint. And was this a case that the federal government, that the FBI, that the Justice Department, and then prosecutors in the Southern District of New York should have wasted their time on? And I think when you look carefully at how the judges who had to deal with these cases viewed them and some of the language that they used, the answer to that is no. It was a ridiculous waste of time, and these judges were just scratching their head and biting their lips as these, these cases proceeded through trial and then now through the appellate process. And I said in prior episodes that it would be really interesting to know how much money was spent on these cases, both at the investigative uh, phase with the FBI and the sting operation, then through the prosecutorial side when the resources in the Southern District of New York were being used to decide whether to, to go forward with charges and then how to prosecute them. And then, of course, with the actual trial and, and all the pretrial stuff, too. I mean, this went on for years. And the costs to the system were enormous. And when you look at the stakes, the true stakes here in terms of the amount of money that moved and the real world consequence to these institutions, which was really zero. These prosecutions made no sense at all. And I don't think we'll ever know what the thinking was. And you have to remember that when these charges were announced in September of 2017, there was an acting U.S. attorney in the federal system, the U.S. attorney is head of the various district offices. And that person is responsible for the final say in whether or not a case goes forward to prosecution and whether an indictment's going to be issued, all, all those things. And that is a very powerful office, particularly in the Southern District of New York, which may be the most influential federal district, prosecutorial district in the entire country, because so many of these high-profile financial cases run through the Southern District. And so it handles some of the most consequential prosecutions in our federal justice system, which makes the decision to prosecute this Mickey Mouse low-level case even more puzzling. But you had an acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District at the time, this guy named Kim June, and he had the, the national press conference and he had the charts and all this stuff. And there's an element of showmanship with these prosecutorial districts and the U.S. attorneys want to make a name for themselves. And they want to make a splash with the high-profile cases, and we all are familiar with that dynamic. I think that was a part of this, and June didn't have a lot of time. He, the appointment for the, an interim U.S. attorney, I think, is, lasts only 300 days, and it's not the interim people usually don't get the job. It's a political appointment, and 
So June was there and he made his splash with these cases that obviously had enormous public interest. And they were breaking ground here by elevating NCAA rules, amateurism-based rules, to the status of federal criminal law. And the violation of NCAA amateurism-based rules became the predicate for these charges, these federal charges. And that was precedent-setting. And it was a dangerous, dangerous precedent. June makes his splash, and then it, it's turned over to the prosecutors, and then it gets into the criminal system and the pretrial stuff, and then the trial. And then June disappears. He's now in private practice with a, a high-powered international law firm. But it would be real interesting to talk to him and try to figure out what he was thinking and what the influences were in the Justice Department. But when this settles in and when this is viewed with the benefit of a clear-eyed hindsight, this may rank among the most difficult to defend federal prosecutions of recent memory. I mean, it just made no sense at all. And some good people got got caught up in this and thrown under the bus. And that was really the bottom line. And with that last episode and, and with Chuck Person, the Auburn assistant coach, whose career has been ruined. But as a requiem to the death of the basketball-related cases that, that came out of the Southern District of New York, I want to talk about the opinion of the dissenting judge in this Second Circuit opinion. And remember, in the federal circuit system, panels of three judges hear these appeals in the first instance. And these aren't discretionary appeals. They have to evaluate the case. An appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court is discretionary, and the court doesn't even have to look at the case. But in every litigation scenario, regardless of the context, regardless of the participants. There are certain themes and then certain money quotes that really define the entire process. In this Gatto case, and again, I have read good parts of the trial transcripts. I've read the decisions of Judge Kaplan. I, I read the proposed expert opinions, and there was an, an important one that this economist, sports economist Dan Rasher, issued in the Gatto case. And he was a key expert witness in the antitrust cases, and he's one of the foremost experts on the economics of big-time college sports. But he did an expert report that Judge Kaplan excluded that basically said that these universities couldn't be victims because they had made the calculated decision to engage in this high-risk talent acquisition market in men's college basketball and the seediness of it and the grassroots basketball influences. They accepted that risk consciously and purposefully because the value of the athletes, of the individual athletes they're going after was so high that if they didn't get caught, they got great payoff. But if, even if they did get caught, the penalties weren't going to knock them out of the big-time college basketball marketplace. And Judge Kaplan said, no, we're not going to let that in. He said it wasn't relevant and it could be prejudicial and, and, and all that stuff. But that basic notion went to the heart of the victim university theory and said these universities can't be victims because they're part of the scam. In the Second Circuit opinion in Gatto, the dissenting judge, Gerard Lynch, who has an incredible resume, but he really got to the heart of the hypocrisy 
of this prosecution and the ridiculousness of the theory. And I'm going to read from his opinion because it beautifully captures what this whole enterprise is about. And I'm going to tie it into some of the work by Ronald Smith and his book, Sports and Freedom, that came out in 1988. I've talked about that quite a bit in prior episodes, and I want to read from that as well because what Judge Lynch was describing in his dissenting opinion in the hypocrisy in the business model is exactly what Smith identified in Sports and Freedom in 1988. And that is still on the table now, this amateur professional dilemma and the hypocrisy of claiming to the outside world that you have this amateur product to try to save face. But behind the scenes, you are knowingly purposefully and aggressively putting together the most professionalized product that you can to win games and enhance the brand of your university. And that fundamental tension has existed since the beginning of the 20th century. And it has only gotten worse as the gulf between the professional side and the amateur rhetoric has grown. And that has occurred under the leadership of the very university presidents who claimed that they were going to take control of uh, intercollegiate athletics to decrease that gap, to close that gap, and to bring the big revenue-producing sport products in alignment with university academic values and broader higher education values. That's been a joke, a joke. So many components of this business model that have gone to protecting the outward expression of righteousness and amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model have become even more hypocritical under the leadership of the university presidents. And the death of that movement, which I think is pretty clear from this new constitution, is a welcome death in my view. But I really want to focus on some uh, language from Judge Lynch's dissenting opinion. And it's a long dissent. It's about 45 pages. And it relates almost exclusively to very complicated evidentiary issues. What's admissible, what's not, what's relevant, what's not. And that can be a mind-numbing exercise. Gatto and his lawyers, in their appeal to the Second Circuit, were focusing a lot on these evidentiary issues, and they believe certain evidence should have come in. One of the key components of the evidence that was excluded that Gatto thought should have come in, and I think that Judge Lynch thought should have come in, was the defendant's state of mind, their, their belief about the business model, and their belief that not only were they not doing any harm to the victim universities, but they were actually doing precisely what the victim universities behind the scenes insisted upon but refused to acknowledge publicly. And that goes to the heart of what Ronald Smith was describing in this amateur professional dilemma. And Judge Lynch captured that in his dissenting opinion. And as I discussed Judge Lynch's viewpoints here, I wanted to say for context that as a general proposition, Federal judges are extraordinarily conservative, lowercase c, in how they characterize the participants in the litigation. They avoid hyperbole. They avoid expressing opinions on the wisdom of the positions that, that have been taken or even the wisdom of the suit in the first instance. And particularly where the federal government is involved in a prosecution, federal judges are very deferential and very slow to say anything that could be construed as a criticism of the government or of the case. That's the rule. And occasionally you have a judge go off, but that's unusual. And 
that's driven in large part out of this sense of respect for the law, respect for the participants in the justice system, and the protection of the integrity of the process. And that is so, so important. And it's even more important now in a federal system where the legislative and executive branches aren't well respected and the judiciary is really keeping its finger in the dike in this whole shooting match. And, and I think people don't understand how important that is. And that's probably a, a topic for another podcast. <laughs> and I, I'm going to get to that. It's on my list of things to do with my other projects. What you have here with these judges is a very deferential kind of collegiality that exists among the participants in the justice system. And what you see, I think, not just from Judge Lynch here in his opinion, his dissenting opinion. I think you saw this from the other district court judges that, that heard these cases. So you had Kaplan, and he's a tough guy and all that, law and order kind of guy. You also had Loretta Presca, and then a third judge, Edgardo Ramos. And Presca and Ramos, I think, were pretty cynical of the government's case, and that was reflected in their sentencing. And Judge Presca made some very direct comments at sentencing that basically said, what the government's doing here makes no sense. But when you look at how these cases were actually handled, even by the most aggressive judge, and that was clearly Judge Kaplan, but when you look at how these cases were treated, there's not much there there. And Preska and Ramos were basically saying, this is a waste of time. You're wasting our time. What the hell are we doing here? This is a federal criminal court. And we're in the Southern District of New York for crying out loud. And I think you hear the same thing coming from Lynch, but again, in a very deferential way. So what I want to communicate is that the very fact that you see this kind of commentary means that it is way worse than the language that they use will convey. And it was way worse. And I think historically, this is going to be viewed, as I said earlier, as just a huge miscalculation by the federal government. And then another thing that's important to keep in mind, and this goes to Judge Kaplan's victim university theory, and that is if, if you take amateurism out of the equation, if the principle of amateurism doesn't exist, then none of the harms that the judges identified as sufficient to support these wire fraud charges would exist. The claimed loss of the scholarship money or the authority to decide how that scholarship money is allocated wouldn't have been an issue but for the ineligibility of the athletes. And that is a direct product of the principle of amateurism. This notion that the universities were subjected to risk of NCAA penalties, again, a direct product of the principle of amateurism and NCAA amateurism-based rules. And then the certification that the athletes or their families sign saying that they haven't violated any NCAA rules, those relate to amateurism-based rules. And when you look at the certification, it all goes to whether or not these athletes have done anything that could compromise their amateur status. So if you take amateurism out of the equation, those three harms disappear. And that is why I have said post-Austin that if the Austin decision in the United States Supreme Court, the unanimous decision that really undermined the NCAA's use of and conceptualization of amateurism, if that is on the books when these cases are being investigated by the FBI, I don't think that the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York go forward with that case because the linchpin of the entire theory 
is based on a principle that's been called into question by unanimous Supreme Court. And now when you press rewind back to 2017-2018, when the prosecutors in, in the Southern District of New York were deciding whether to go forward, you're in a world where the principle of amateurism is unchallengeable in the quarters of American power. That's true. It was true in Congress. And I did an episode in connection with my analysis of the Austin case, and it was titled Judicial Fealty to Amateurism. I think it was episode eight. And I went back through and looked at how federal judges had really deferred to the NCAA and its conceptualization of amateurism. Even Judge Wilkin in the O'Bannon and the Austin suits, in that O'Bannon case, she came right to the edge. She, she dismantled amateurism. She spent almost a decade, or actually in, in both cases combined, a, a decade hearing the NCAA's BS about amateurism. And she came out right in those, both of those opinions and said, I've been hearing all this stuff, but I have yet to hear the NCAA offer an actual definition of amateurism or any other similar principle that would justify its compensation limits. And that's part of the smokescreen. There, there, there's no such thing as a definition of amateurism. It's a vaporous concept. But when federal judges, even Judge Wilkin, were right there at the line of blowing the doors on amateurism and saying that it is a facial violation of antitrust laws, and we're going to strike it down altogether, and we're just going to turn over to the free markets, the labor market in big-time college sports. We're just going to do for the labor pool what the Supreme Court did in the Board of Regents case with the institutional interest in college football. We said, we're going to strike down the NCAA's monopoly. We're going to turn college football over to the free markets. These federal judges have the same power with respect to the labor pool and the use of amateurism. Amateurism really wasn't an issue in Board of Regents. That was a, a fight over the corporate interests, basically. The athletes' rights cases, the cases challenging NCAA compensation limits, amateurism-based compensation limits, those go to the labor pool. The federal judges, because of the power that the concept of amateurism has had historically and the way that the NCAA has propagandized it, they would go right up to the edge and their intellect was telling them this makes no sense at all. But they were so afraid of the unattended consequences and the fear that they were going to be the judge that was going to ruin college sports forever and all the fear-mongering arguments that the NCAA has made for decades and has been very successful in making. So you have this sense of deference and fealty to the NCAA's values. And I think what you saw in the way that the district court judges responded to these cases, and the judges have no control over the cases that are brought to them. They're not involved in the decision of whether a case goes forward or not. That's done exclusively at the, the prosecutorial level in the U.S. Attorney's Office. The judges just take whatever those uh, decision makers view as a worthy case to prosecute. And I think what you heard if you're reading between the lines and looking at how the judges characterized the case, how they criticized the government in very subtle ways, and then how they handled sentencing, they were essentially saying that this whole theory, the whole legal theory, rested on a very shaky scaffolding. So with all of that for context, let me just go to Judge Lynch's opinion, and then I'm going to stop where necessary to talk about this. And I guess the other thing I should also say about these federal judges is that it's my belief, and I don't know this for sure, it's my belief that most of these judges 
aren't sitting at sports bars during March Madness talking with the person at the bar stool next to them about the nuances of the, the strategies that the teams are employing, you know, or taking bets on the next round. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that's the case. And then the other thing is it, it could be tempting to try to pigeonhole judges based on what you think their political beliefs are or the president that appointed them. So, for example, Judge Lynch, he was appointed by Obama. He appears to be a civil libertarian, and he's done some work for the ACLU at some point. But he's a brilliant jurist. His resume is ridiculous. You're just thinking, like, can one person do all this stuff? I think that's overblown, and I think it would be a mistake to dismiss his observations in this dissenting opinion on those grounds. And in that regard, I would just point out that uh, Judge Preska was appointed by Bush one, George Herbert Walker Bush. And so if you're looking at this through a political lens, you could look at, at her and say, why wasn't she straight down the line, law and order, NCAA, all the way? And I think, again, that's overblown. I think these judges take their role very seriously, and, and that's increasingly so given the gravity of the work they're doing in a dysfunctional federal government right now. But look, I think Preska and Lynch kind of land in the same place. And so does Ramos. But there is consistency across that political spectrum, if you view it that way. So uh, going to Judge Lynch's dissenting opinion in the Second Circuit, and again, he's talking about evidence here. And it's very complicated, but he brings it home to how it's relevant and what the defendant's state of mind was, what they believed. And there was evidence that was excluded from the trial about the defendant's belief that this whole victim university thing was kabuki theater. And what appeared to be this off-the-books market, this dirty market for talent acquisition, was off the radar screen because the universities demanded that it be off the radar screen so they could continue their public pretense of amateurism and stay in the good graces of the public and the perception of higher education and the institutional interests. But everybody was in on the scam, and I think that's the reality of it. But here's what Judge Lynch says, and let me go back to this relevant portion. So he says, here, the defendant's argument, and the defendants were Gatto, and the assistant coaches, really, I don't know if they were actually part of the appeal, but Gatto's arguments also applied to these assistant coaches who got embroiled in this and prosecuted. So here, the defendant's argument was that the things the government said they stole from the universities, one, the scholarship money provided to the athletes, and two, the university's ability to comply with the NCAA rules and avoid penalties, were things that they reasonably believed the universities were, in fact, happy enough to give up in the pursuit of greater financial benefit. And that's absolutely true. But he's talking here about the, the defendant's belief and that evidence of that belief, however cynical you might view it, and the judge viewed it as quite cynical, and he goes on to say, the defendants claimed to believe that by not openly acknowledging the rules violations they committed, they were deceiving no one because the universities, in fact, knew that such violations happened regularly. And I want to stop right there. Remember that the Commission on College Basketball was formed in direct response to these prosecutions and the FBI investigation. And Condoleezza Rice came out and said, and this is in the report, but it was also in comments that she made at the time of the release of the report, and that was that everybody in the system knew 
that these kinds of transactions occurred and this kind of money moved. And Mark Emmert, in his October 11th press release, October 11th of 2017, after these charges were announced in September of 2017, he's talking about the code of silence, implying that, yeah, everybody knows about this, so let's nip it in the bud in the name of amateurism and the righteousness of this collegiate model and all this happy malarkey. But this belief that the defendants had that Everybody knew that these kind of things happened regularly. That is not controversial. There's no question about that because the NCAA's own Commission on College Basketball explicitly said so. And I think Mark Emmert implicitly said so in the way that he characterized the quote-unquote scandal. So Judge Lynch goes on to say, the universities did not know of the specific payments made by these particular defendants, not because the defendants pulled the wool over the victims' eyes. And by victims, he's talking about the universities, but because the alleged victims desired not to know too much in order to preserve a hypocritical pretense of compliance while pursuing the financial and reputational benefits of maintaining successful athletic programs without paying the athletes whose skill and hard work generate the profits that go to the adult coaches and schools. I mean, that nails it. It just nails it. And that's very, very similar to what Professor Smith, Ronald Smith, was describing in his 1988 book, Sports and Freedom. And that really is the amateur professional dilemma. Judge Lynch goes on to say, to whatever extent the defendant's professed beliefs correspond to reality, evidence to that effect would have been difficult to come by. The essence of the defense is that the universities pretended, and Judge Lynch puts pretended in italics, to want to run clean programs, and that this pretense required those who funneled payments to hard-pressed families of student-athletes to operate in secret as if they were deceiving universities. And he puts as if in italics, as if they were deceiving universities that themselves were trying to hide what makes their programs successful. So he puts pretended in italics, as if in italics. And this is very similar to what Ronald Smith was describing. And let me just go to his book. And in this book, he describes and analyzes the big-time college sports business model through the lens of American values. And he talks about this amateur professional dilemma, the very thing that Judge Lynch just described. And he does a chapter, this is chapter 12, it's titled, Amateur College Sport, an Untenable Concept in a Free and Open Society. And he goes on to discuss in a very thoughtful way that the whole concept of amateurism and the way that universities have cynically and hypocritically applied it to an obviously professional business model is un-American. It is facially inconsistent with American values. And that has been a central theme of how I conceptualize the business of big-time college sports and the inequities in it. It is facially un-American, literally un-American, the principle of amateurism and the restriction on basic American liberties, economic liberties, and fundamental principles of egalitarianism and equality of opportunity and fairness. These, we've taken this one class of laborers and said, oh, we're going to apply a 19th century British social convention 
to you to prevent you from participating in the marketplace as any other free American would. So let me read a little bit from that chapter, Amateur Sport, an untenable concept in an open and free society. And Smith says, by the early 20th century, there was probably no college in America which was able to preserve amateurism in men's sport as competition for money and non-money prizes, contests against professionals, collection of gate receipts, support for training tables, provision for athletic tutors, recruitment and payment of athletes, and the hiring of professional coaches pervaded the intercollegiate athletic scene. Professionalism had invaded college sports and it defeated amateurism and it was understood in the 19th century. Basically saying amateurism is a scam. And Smith was one of the historians who co-authored a friend of the court brief in the Austin case. I think Taylor Branch did this. I think John Thielen, who I've talked about, and then Professor Smith authored a brief that basically said that amateurism was a sham and it never existed and it couldn't exist in American society. And then Smith goes on to say, to conduct athletics in a professional mode while calling them amateur was both a self-contradiction and an hypocrisy, a pretense at virtuous character without possessing virtue. To call collegiate sport amateur was in fact play acting the ancient Greek definition of the term hypocrisy. Intercollegiate athletics, which had many virtues according to numerous individuals, was acting the part of amateur sport while playing like professional athletics. Thus, the amateur professional athletic dilemma developed. If a college had truly amateur sport, it would lose contests and thus prestige. If a college acknowledged outright professional sport, the college would lose respectability as a middle-class or higher-class institution. Be amateur and lose athletically to those who are less amateur. Be outright professional and lose social esteem. The solution to the dilemma, then, was to claim amateurism to the world while, in fact, accepting professionalism. The solution worked amazingly well, but it was not honest intellectually, thus the dilemma. And then Smith goes on to explain why, in his view, that occurred from a historical standpoint. But what he's saying here is that we have the institutional stakeholders, particularly on the academic side, and I think this is reflected very clearly in the presidential movement that originated really in the Knight Foundation's work in the early 90s, but it really can be traced back to the Carnegie Report in 1929. But you have this intellectual elitism. And as the value of professionalized sports became apparent to the institutions, they had to reconcile that tension. And so they just were peacocks, amateurism peacocks in public, preening around and prancing around and creating a lot of distraction. But the reality was a much different reality. And they're still trying to reconcile that dilemma. And the NCAA has stubbornly held on to this principle of amateurism. It's been restated in this new constitution as the college student-athlete model or some absurd reformulation of it. And in the new constitution, the word amateur doesn't appear. That's because amateurism is a bad word now, particularly after the NCAA got its ass kicked in the U.S. Supreme Court in a 9-0 to opinion. So Smith and Lynch are really speaking the same language here. And now I'm going to continue with Judge Lynch's opinion and my favorite quote in this really beautiful articulation of the hypocrisy in big-time college sports. So he says, A venture into the underside of college athletic recruiting 
opens up significant questions about the motivations and beliefs of the participants. We should be particularly careful not to sweep too broadly in declaring out of bounds evidence that does indeed support the defendant's claims about what they believed. And, and here's the line that I really like. He says, the cynicism of their claimed beliefs does not do them much credit. But on this record, one is left with a queasy feeling that the deeper cynicism may be in the system within which they operate. People like the defendants operate at the seamiest margin of amateur sports. They, and the athletes and their families who succumb to their offers, are violating the rules by which the universities, cynically or sincerely, have agreed to be bound. Rules of which the athletes are well aware and with which they are required to represent that they have complied. But all are vulnerable to losing scholarships and having their vocational training disrupted if they are publicly known to have violated the rules. Whether or not those who bribe aspiring athletes to sign onto a particular college basketball's program have defrauded the universities, they expose the youthful athletes to a high degree of risk. And I think that's a really important observation because what Judge Lynch is saying there is that within this obviously hypocritical system that is kabuki theater, the people who ultimately pay the price are the athletes. They're the ones that get thrown under the bus. They're the ones that are declared ineligible. They are the ones who have their careers ruined. And they're the ones, particularly in these basketball-related cases at the Power Five basketball level, they're the ones who underwrite the entire NCAA bureaucratic state. Every penny of money that the NCAA national office gets, it gets from the labors of these very athletes who have been thrown under the bus. And then Judge Lynch ends with this, and this is important. He says, it is not for judges to decide whether it makes sense to use federal law enforcement revenues to pursue the relatively low-level agents of corruption in this system. Our only responsibility is to decide whether the defendants have been tried and convicted on the charges brought against them in accordance with the law, including the applicable rules of evidence. And in that close out, Judge Lynch is saying about as directly as a federal judge is going to say that this entire prosecution was complete and total bullshit. You've put us through this. We had no choice. You brought this to us. And now we have to do our job. And our job is really within very narrow parameters, the way the issues were framed on appeal. And we're talking about these very complicated, mind-bending evidentiary rules and admissibility rules and relevance rules and all, all of those things. The, the thing that's important, I think, about Judge Lynch's opinion is that while he's really only charged with navigating in these narrow guardrails and all these arcane evidentiary issues, he steps outside that to put it into perspective. And he does it through what the defendants in this case, Gatto and the assistant coaches, what they reasonably believed about the business model, about their relationship to the universities, about what the universities knew, and the extent to which they were willing participants in all of this corruption. And not only willing participants, they insisted upon it behind the scenes in order to gain prestige, in order to improve their branding and their marketing. And the only way to do that is to win games. And they will say or do or pay whatever they have to to achieve those goals. That's the business model. Judge uh, Lynch views it as cynical. And he thinks that view doesn't serve the participants in the market very well. And he's really talking about the defense there. And then he goes on to say, one's left with a queasy feeling that it's really not these individuals, but the system in which they operate. And that is the truth. That is the truth 
of the business model in big time college sports yet in, in almost every aspect of the marketplace, the broader marketplace, including the sports media. Everyone uh, plays along with this hypocrisy, with this amateur professional dilemma, and they resolve it at the public relations level, and I think st still to a certain extent at the normative level, at the emotional level, in favor of the amateur lie rather than the professional truth. And I think it's also important to point out that Judge Lynch isn't just pontificating from on high from his circuit court dais. He actually has experience with formulating the judgments that go into exercising prosecutorial discretion. He actually worked in the Southern District of New York as an assistant U.S. attorney, and he was in charge of the criminal division for a while. So he has some real-world insight into whether this case really should have been brought. So with that, I, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the few changes that were made in this now third draft of the Constitution and also talk about these surveys because the, some of the numbers are really, really eye-popping just in terms of participation rights. And these surveys were put together by the NCAA. This was all in-house, and, and the information they provide is very self-serving, and they use some quotes from certain responses, and all of those are, are very self-serving. And there's one very important and, I think, fundamentally dishonest manipulation of the survey that they, they throw in and, into that, the second survey. And that goes directly to the extent to which the universities are required to protect the athletes from mental and physical abuse and, and harm. And that's gone. <laughs> you know, no, no discussion about that. That may have been the most important sentence in the entire Constitution from the standpoint of student-athlete well-being and, and protecting their interests and their rights. So again, just more stunning hypocrisy and misdirection. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>